This morning we're going to end up in Luke, but it's going to take us about 20 minutes of Old Testament to get there. So we're going to start in Exodus um, chapter 4. God is calling a very reluctant Moses into service to be a rescuer for a community that is in slavery. And I want you to see, he, Moses finally says yes, and then there's this, this line that God uses. He says, Moses, go tell Pharaoh this. Chapter 4, verse 22. Then say to Pharaoh, Pharaoh was the ruler of Egypt, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn what? Israel is my son. Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go that they might worship me. And so I want you to keep this phrase, Israel as God's son. I want you to keep that in the back of your minds. Flip over to chapter 16. God rescues the people uh, through the ten great and mighty displays of power. We call them ten plagues, but they were ten judgments against the gods of Egypt. And, and, And then he takes the people to the Red Sea. He parts the Red Sea. And everyone lives happily ever after, right? Not so much. Those silly Israelites, I'm so glad we're not like them, but they immediately start, they immediately start complaining. So, Exodus, they've seen God do this amazing stuff. And then notice, chapter 16, verse 2. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Those were the two leaders of the community. They said... If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. And never mind that you were slaves, you couldn't rest on the Sabbath, you couldn't worship your God, and your firstborn children were being put to death. But other than that, you had in and out, and so that was great. (laughs) But you have brought us into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. The Lord responds, Tell them I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for just that day. In this way, I will test the Israelites to see if they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. Now, if you're familiar with the biblical story, this was called... Manna, which means, what is it? Because one day, they woke up, and like dew covering a field, there was this flaky sort of bread-like substance that was covering the wilderness, at least right around them. And so they would go, and they would gather it, and God was very clear. You could get enough just for that day. If you took too much, the rest of it would spoil. Now, Americans have no conception of the kind of dependence he was asking of them, right? Because literally, you went to bed every single day with no food in your tent. None. Not one speck of food was in your tent. You only could trust that God would keep his word again the next day. Can you imagine the temptation to hoard the food? I mean, absolutely. We hoard and we have plenty, But you're in the wilderness and every night you go to bed and there's nothing. Except on the sixth day, which was the day before the Sabbath, when he'd give you enough for the the sixth day and the seventh day so you didn't work on the seventh day. This was, the scriptures say, an exercise in God testing his people to see if they would follow his instructions. And if we had time, we'd read, many of them did not. It was too hard to trust that there would just be enough. Right, And even for us, I mean, 
give us today our daily bread, that doesn't mean a lot for us. We can go buy some, first of all. But secondly, we're people that specialize in keeping enough bread for a week or a month. But yet God just is this kind of God that just keeps, just today, just today, just enough today. And so he tested them and they failed. Go, if you would, to chapter 17. Chapter 16 was about food. This one's about water. The whole Israelite community, verse, let's start uh, verse 1, set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped uh, at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us, our children and livestock, die of thirst? Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I going to do with these people? They're about ready to put me to death. The Lord answered, go out in front of the people, take some of the elders of Israel with you and take in your hand the staff that you used to strike the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel and he called the place Massa and Meribah, which are words for quarreling and testing, because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is he among us or not? Now, the very important distinction coming. In the first failure, God was testing them. Testing doesn't mean causing them to stumble. It means revealing what's inside of them. And so God simply said he caused them to be hungry and then he gave them just enough for that day to see if they'd really trust him for just enough for that day. This water episode was them testing God to prove creating an artificial situation where God had to demonstrate his faithfulness to his covenant and promises. So God tested them. They test God. Have they been successful at either one? Nope. One last failure I want to draw your attention to. Go to Exodus 32. And again, I'm so glad we're not like them. Exodus 32. Because, I mean, we see God do great stuff and then we don't complain. Exodus 32. Moses, their leader, is up on this mountain and he's meeting with God for 40 days. The people get a little squirrely. So, they went to Aaron and they said, verse 1, Come, Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we're not quite sure what's happened to him. So Aaron said, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, sons, and daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So moral of the story, do not wear gold earrings. So all the people took off their earrings, brought them to Aaron. He took what they'd made them and he shaped it into an idol cast in the form of a calf, a symbol of a god that was popular in that area. These, and then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Now, the one true God wasn't real thrilled with this development. And so he sends Moses back down and there's judgment leveled against the people. But here's the thing I want you to notice. Israel was called... God's firstborn son. They're brought into the wilderness where they fail spectacularly. And there are three failures. The first one involved trusting for food. Would God provide for them or not? The second one 
involved testing God. Is he among us or not? Show yourself. And the third one involved worshiping other gods. Okay, you got the three? Now, go to the book of Deuteronomy. And if you're here, you're in high school, you're in college, just know that if you stick with me, you will discover how to date well. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 4. We'll answer the age-old question, how far is too far? Oh, I know. Deuteronomy 4. No, it's Deuteronomy 6, guys. Don't listen to me. Don't listen to me. So, what's up front row? So, God delivers the people, but the people, that first generation right after the Exodus... They continue to rebel. He takes them to the promised land. They don't want to go in because they hear rumors about how like, tall and powerful the people in the promised land are. So God says, you know what? If you guys aren't interested in going, then we'll just wait for 40 years while you wander in the wilderness until you die off, and then I'll take the next generation. I'll take your kids in. Moses was not allowed to go with them. So Deuteronomy is Moses' last sermon to the people saying, don't forget what's happened. You're going to get this land that God's going to give you. Don't forget him. There's an urgency to Deuteronomy that, is, is, that I love because he's, he's beseeching them while at the same time he's saying, and when you screw up, here's what's going to happen. But notice verse uh, 13 of chapter 6. Fear the Lord your God and serve him only. Now, this is a reference back to their tendency to worship other gods, right? Golden calf being primary example. Fear the Lord your God, serve him only, and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the people around you. Jump down to verse 16. Do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa. Be sure to keep the commands of the Lord your God. So, Moses is referencing two of the three failures right, that we just read about. Putting God to the test about water and then worshiping the golden calf. And then notice chapter 8, he references the third one we just looked at. Notice this. Chapter 8, verse 2. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known. Why? To teach you that you do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So we have, in Exodus, three significant failures. We have, in Deuteronomy, three lessons learned from those failures. Okay, hey, do you remember the whole manna thing? Man does not live by bread alone. Just remember that. Hey, you remember when you tested the whole water? You know, about the water thing? Don't put the Lord God to the test. And you remember the golden calf thing? Worship the Lord and serve Him only. Okay, these are kind of big deals in Israel's collective consciousness. In fact, go to Psalm 106. They're referenced all over the place. I just want to show you very briefly that, that the nation of Israel keeps referring back to these mistakes. So in the Psalms written much later... These mistakes, these failures, were referenced yet again. Psalm chapter 106, verse 13. 
the writer here is kind of summarizing Israel's journey, and he says those, that first generation soon forgot what God had done in rescuing them and did not wait for his plan to unfold. In the desert, they gave in to their craving. In the wilderness, they put God to the test. So he gave them what they asked for, manna, but set a wasting disease among them. Jump down to verse 19. So that was about the manna incident. This now is about the golden calf. Notice verse 19. At Horeb, they made a calf and worshipped an idol cast for metal. They exchanged their glorious God for an image of a bull which eats grass. They forgot the God who saved them. Jump over to verse 32. This references the water incident. So we have the food incident, manna. We have the golden calf incident referenced. And now we have the water incident, the testing of God. By the waters, verse 32 of Meribah, they angered the Lord and trouble came to Moses because of them. For they rebelled against the Spirit of God and rash lips came from Moses's, rash words came from Moses' lips or rash lips came from Moses' words. Either way. Now, I know this is a bit confusing, but I want you to see three failures, three lessons, and even generations later, they were still talking about the failures. That was how imprinted they were upon the collective consciousness of Israel. Are you with me thus far? By the way, this is all intro. Okay, we haven't started the sermon yet. Go to Luke chapter 1. Love it with a holy love. Love it. Luke chapter 1. Now, I've got one other thing to draw your attention to, and then we'll get to our text. All right? Happy Sunday. We've got five more days left of winter. Luke chapter 1. Now notice, notice this title that's used of, uh, this title that's used of the, the son to be born to Mary. So this is an angelic announcement to Mary. Verse 32, this son you have will be, will be great and he will be called son of the most high. Jump down to verse 35. The angel answered again, speaking to Mary. Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the one to be born will be called the Son of God. Jump over to chapter 3 when Jesus is getting baptized. Verse 30, nope, verse 22 is where we'll start. When Jesus is being baptized, the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven saying, you are my Son, And then, because this is what you do after a baptism scene, you insert a genealogy. So now, Luke starts from Jesus and goes backward, giving a genealogy. This person was son of this person, this person was son of this person. And then notice how it ends. Verse 38. Who was the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of who? So how many sons of God have we met in our 20 minutes together? Exodus 4, who was called Son of God there? Israel. Right? Yeah, so, and and now we read, there's a Jesus that's called the Son of God, and lastly, who else was called Son of God? Adam. That becomes significant in just a moment. Again, dating advice, forthcoming. Luke chapter 4, verse 1. And I see some of you checking out. I see it. And I resist it with every fiber of my being. I resist your checking out. And do you know why I'm immune? 
I'll tell you why I'm immune to your checking out. I'll tell you. Because when I was a young preacher, which I still am, but when I was younger, I would practice. And my wife will tell you this. I practiced in front of my wife. I'd say, hey, what do you think of this? And 100% of the time, she would fall asleep. Luke chapter 4, verse 1. So your sleeping does not scare me. Verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the... Okay, now, if you've been with us for any length of time, we did a whole series, not a whole series, a whole message on wilderness. That, there's a whole motif right there. Just that one word, wilderness, would clue you in immediately. Okay, there's something bigger going on. There's a bigger story being told here because who was led by God into the wilderness in the Old Testament? Israel was. So you're like, oh, oh, that's interesting. And, and, then, and then you come across where for 40 days he was tested by the devil. So you'd instantly go, oh, 40 years for Israel, now 40 days for Jesus. You, see, we read this as Americans and we, and, and we skip like all of the really incredible Jewish stuff that's in here saying, because here's the point, all right, this is a really big deal. We read the temptations of Jesus and immediately turn it into how can we be successful facing temptation? But that's not what this is teaching. This is teaching something far more radical. All right, so pay attention to these little nods the writer's giving to the stories we just read about. Where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days and at the end of them he was hungry, as you would be. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Now, do we know he's the Son of God? Yeah, we just read it in Luke where the angel says it twice. The Father says it when Jesus is baptized. No question Jesus is the Son of God. The Greek construction of the sentence isn't suggesting that the devil doesn't know. The if here better carries the idea of, well, since you're the Son of God, comma, turn these stones to bread. It assumes that Jesus is the Son of God, but then questions the nature of that sonship. So, let's say for the sake of argument that you're the Son of God. Turn these stones to bread. That's the flavor of it. It's not like, it's not like Satan didn't know, and certainly Luke's audience would have known who this was. I, I think that what he's getting at isn't whether or not Jesus is the Son of God, but it's how his sonship will be expressed. So he says, turn these stones to bread. You're hungry, right? You're in the wilderness and you're hungry. Does that remind you of a story we just read about? You're in the wilderness, God has led you there, and you're hungry. Right? If you had a dashboard, the Jewish lights would be blinking dramatically. And what does Jesus say in response? You shall not live by bread alone. Straight out of the book of Deuteronomy. Now, the reason that matters is because we want to turn the temptations of Jesus into nice little moralistic lessons for us as individuals. When what Luke is doing is not suggesting that Jesus is our example, he's suggesting that Jesus is our representative. He's the Son of God that will succeed where the two other sons of God have failed. First Son of God was Adam. 
The spirit and water. The chapter starts with the spirit and water, and here comes a temptation involving food. Adam fails. Then we read about God's people redeemed out of slavery in the wilderness, hungry, and they fail. And now we read of Jesus, the one unique, absolutely unrepeatable Son of God who will succeed. But notice His success is found in pointing back to Israel's failure and the lessons learned from it. Are you with me on this? It's really critical you see this. The train starts with Adam being called the Son of God and Israel being called the Son of God, and both failed when they were tested. Israel's failure, very memorably, was three, but more than that, but three very famous ones. Bread, water, right, which was testing, and then the worship of false gods. So what are we going to see Jesus tempted with? Well, we're going to see bread. We're not going to see water. We're going to see something far more insidious. And we're going to see Jesus tempted to test God too. Okay? So the same temptations that Israel was presented with are now presented to Jesus. And the point of the story isn't, hey guys, here's how you resist temptation, although you can make those points. The point rather is that Jesus is the representative for us. In other words, Jesus was faithful where everyone else wasn't. And because of his fidelity, you and I now rest in his finished work and are credited with His obedience. That means then that any wrestling we do with temptation doesn't come out of approving ourselves. It comes out rather of the gradual outworking of the identity that Jesus has purchased for us as our representative. Are you with me on this point? It frames this passage in grace, not in moralism. The point isn't to teach you lessons about temptation. See, we read it as Western individuals, whereas the text is saying, there's a big train coming, and that train is Jewish, and the train is telling you, this Jesus is fulfilling all of the prior stories before Him. He is in Himself living and embodying Israel's destiny and Adam's destiny as well. So that's what's being said here. So, turn these stones to bread. It is written, man shall not live on bread alone. Straight from Deuteronomy. The devil led him to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It's been given to me. I can give it to anyone I want. All you have to do is worship me. Worship here means bow down. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Where was that? Deuteronomy 6. We just read it. The devil led him up to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. Now, this was this, some think this point was called the wings of the temple, the wing of the temple. And then Satan quotes from a psalm that talks about how God protects those who shelter in his wings. Psalm 91. Now, we'll talk about how crazy it is that Satan knows the Scriptures, because I would argue he's still kind of throwing half-baked truth out there even today. However, notice, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from the highest point of the temple. Why? Well, here's Psalm 91. God will command His angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not even strike your foot against a stone. Hey, you want to trust God? Then trust Him. Throw yourself off. Here's a biblical promise that He'll let nothing bad happen to you. And notice what Jesus says. Straight from Deuteronomy. 
Do not put the Lord God to the test. And then the tempter leaves to wait for an opportune time. Now, do you see what's happening here? Jesus is reliving Israel's story, but doing so successfully. Okay? Where Israel failed, Jesus is succeeding. That is the biggest point Luke is telling you. But notice the nature of the temptations. The nature of the temptations, they weren't tempting Jesus to become the Son of God. They were tempting Him to walk away from the Father's definition of what sonship was going to look like. See, and this is so massive for us. Relevance is like five minutes out. Because what was the path God had Jesus walking on? The path of fully humanness, right? You will suffer, you will be hungry, you will be thirsty, you will be betrayed, you will be disappointed. Second path was the path of utter dependency on the Father. Jesus Himself will say, "All that I only do what I see the Father doing. In other words, Jesus could have cashed in on His divine status at any point, but refused to. And instead made Himself dependent. But the third piece was the peace of humility and suffering. That this unique, unrepeatable Son of God would now die at the very hands of the nations He was supposed to overthrow. So you have to understand, the temptations didn't have to do with, hey Jesus, are you really? To me, it was, hey Jesus, how will you be the Son of God? And all Satan was offering were shortcuts. Shortcuts. Hey, Jesus, why should you be hungry? Dude, you, by the word, right? Everything came into existence. So really? I mean, won't you do this later when you feed 5,000 people? I mean, come on. Do it here. Or why would you suffer when there are biblical promises that the anointed one will be taken care of? Or why not? Psalm chapter 2 says that the Messiah will rule over the nation, so why not rule over them now? I mean, these were all shortcuts. These were all things that Jesus did end up receiving. But only after He was glorified through His suffering. And that was the insidious nature of the temptation. It wasn't, hey Jesus, it's wrong to eat bread, or it's wrong to have authority over the kingdoms, or it's wrong to be protected by God. It was, hey Jesus, wander from the Father's path of humiliation and suffering and sorrow and full humanness, and just take, don't the ends justify the means? Are you with me on this? Yeah, not reassuring even remotely. (laughs) Let me try it a different way. The church has often said yes to the very temptations Jesus refused. The Inquisitions, the Crusades, the you will convert at the point of a sword, that's just the ends justify the means, right? We're converting people, slaughtering them in the process. See, and though we don't do that, we undergo the same temptation as a church. To forsake suffering. To forsake humility. To forsake dependence. I mean, would the church in America be as embattled if we had forsaken 
the shortcuts, political power, military might, economic awesomeness? Would the church in America have been as in trouble if, if instead we had led with suffering, humiliation, sorrow, dependency, right? I mean, what Jesus did is he created the path for his church to walk. If you're going to follow him, this is where he's going to take you. And there will come a point on the path you're on where it won't feel so good and you'll be tempted at that precise moment to take control of it yourself. So Jesus is our representative and all of this is framed in grace. But we also learn the true nature of the temptations was for Jesus to act independently of the Father and to wander away from the path that God had chosen, the path of full humanness, the path of sorrow and suffering, the path of humility and dependence. And you, as a follower of His, are faced with the exact same temptations. Right? I mean, I would cash in on my special relationship with God if it would spare me suffering. That's why the health and wealth teaching is so powerful. Who wouldn't want to get a unique place in God's kingdom that guarantees my immunity from sorrow or poverty or suffering? See, but that's just treading in Satan's lies. That's all that is. Whenever the church grasps Well, if we just had the right people, if we just had the right programs, if we just had the right stuff, then that's just buying the satanic lie. The ends do not justify the means. Jesus was really clear. If you're going to do Jesus' work, you have to do it His way. And that means we forsake violence. We forsake coercion. We forsake dazzling. We forsake the temptations that he himself refused. I mean, do you understand how different the church in America would be had we done that? And I'm a huge fan of the Church of America, (laughs) but I'm part of the problem too. Because lurking in my heart is the desire to not suffer, the desire to see my own name glorified and not his. Lurking in my heart is the desire to kind of rub the hard edges off of human life. And when that doesn't happen, to look at God and say, hey, God, look at all that I do for you. See, that's just saying yes to a temptation Jesus refused. I love putting God to the test. I know no one else does that, but have you ever been in a moment where it was like, okay, God, if you do this, then. I mean, I I remember, and this is going to shock you, but there was a young lady in my life who I had moved across country to marry, that she ended up dumping me. Now, I know that's surprising, because who wouldn't want in on this? And, and, I mean, what's she doing today, you know? I mean, I don't know. Um, probably Probably married some guy who wears a suit, you know, to church, and... Sorry, that was a... So... I didn't know I was dumped. Okay, so that's part of my problem. I had no idea I was dumped, so I thought she just needed space. So I, I ended up moving back to her hometown, working for her parents. I, I needed money. Don't look at me. Don't judge me. Don't judge. This is the day before. Fa- these were days before Facebook, guys. I didn't know what was going on. 
And I'm a guy. I, what kind of relational radar do you think I'm running around with, brothers and sisters? I got, I got zero. So I'm getting dumped. I don't know that I'm getting dumped. I need a job. Her family offers me a job. She dumps me, and now I'm stuck in her hometown with her family. It was awesome. And, and so this was kind of a low point in, in my life at that, at that juncture. And, and, you know, I was kind of one of those like, well, yeah, God will meet me in this. And, and so one night I was so sad. And I, I know it, it sounds kind of trivial compared to what other people go through. But at this point in my young life, this was kind of a big deal. And so I said, God, I, I, could you show me that you're still with me? I feel like a failure. I feel rejected. I'd left seminary. I'd left pastoral work. And I'm, you know, doing this. And I said, oh, God, could you please have someone call me? It was two in the morning. I will know it will be you because someone will call me at two in the morning. And so I was so full of faith, I went and sat down by the phone. <laughs> Until 3.30 in the morning when I ended up falling asleep. And then I woke up the next day and had God fulfilled the condition of my demand, not even remotely. And I've since learned a very big lesson that we do not determine the context under which God reveals his faithfulness. See, to test him means to create an artificial situation and demand him to prove himself. The promise is, when you're tested, he'll be faithful. I thought the promise was, If he's faithful, you'll never be tested. And so for me, I still, every now and again, want to bargain and negotiate. Every now and again, I want to cash in on, oh yeah, but don't you see what I'm doing for you? So, Israel's temptation becomes our temptation. Jesus' success at resisting temptation is ours too, but we must begin to walk in it. And how do we walk? The path that sits before you that includes humility and dependence, that includes trust when it'd be either easier to test, suffering when it would be either easier, excuse me, to just try to skip ahead. And so, some of you are sitting here, and the amount of pain in this room, if we were to just take a quick survey, would be staggering. So where do we see Jesus in this? Man, all over the place. Because by walking the way he walked, he opened the door for us to follow. But if we follow, this is where we go. The place of humility, the place of desperation, the place of full humanness and all of its pain. But it's strangely there then. We find all that we wanted looking elsewhere. Right? The reason Easter Sunday is the point of the whole thing and everything rides on Easter is because we're called to grieve but not as those who have no hope. And if we believe that resurrection has the last word, then we wait and we trust, even though that is the hardest thing to learn. So close your eyes for a moment, if you would. And so, Father, we are reminded yet again that this is just one story. 
And that Jesus comes to us full of grace and full of truth. And that for those of us in Him, we, have, we, we now have the privilege of resting in what He's accomplished. But more than that, we now, under grace, seek to follow. But the way of glory and power, the way of immunity from suffering, the way of grasping for ourselves, oh, it continues to beckon us. And so would you give us the courage, Father? Would you give us the courage to wait and to trust? Lord, these are such easy words, such religious cliches, and yet you do your best work in those places. And so we pray that you'd pour out your spirit on us and shepherd us to be more and more like Jesus.